Welcome to Bible Fellowship Church's The Upper Room. Our podcast addresses the Christian's role in today's culture. We hope you enjoy it and find it informative. To help support our ministry, please consider becoming a subscriber and financial contributor. Links to donate are on our website at bfcforyou.org. Now let's get going. Welcome to the Upper Room. This is Associate Pastor Scott Kimball, Bible Fellowship Church, and I just want to welcome everybody and just do a quick little bit of a direct message today. But first of all, if you would be so kind as to follow us on your favorite podcasting app, whether that be Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever it is you listen to these podcasts on, and leave us a review And if you would, your podcasting app allows you to leave stars or things like that. Be sure to give us five stars. It helps us with the algorithm so that we can get this podcast out to a wider audience. We appreciate it very much. If you are finding good value in these podcasts, and I hope that you are, I appreciate giving us a good review. Also, uh, if you have questions, comments, you have ideas, things that we could talk about or discuss or look at as part of the Upper Room podcast, uh, you can shoot me a, an email at the church, or you can check with me on Sunday. All right, so the last couple of Sundays, we've had a couple of sermons in a row on creation, and they've been really good. The first sermon was done by Dr. James Mailer, and the su- Sunday sermon last week was by our elder, uh, Jacob Davis. And both sermons were very well done, had a lot of good information, and made you really think about uh, the story of creation and kind of how it works with the things we can observe in this world. And it just helps things to make a lot of sense. So what I wanted to talk a little bit about today was just to add a little more to that and to some observations that I've made and some things that I've been reading and watching And hopefully give you a little bit something more to think about and maybe some information that you can go check out for yourself. So first of all, one of the things that I thought about was is how some people, Christians in particular theologians, are trying to read the more modern scientific thought or theories into the creation story, right? We've heard of people that do the idea of a... um, Uh, God using the processes of the modern scientific theory to achieve creation, right? Because we just see in the biblical text that it just says God created these things, God did these things, and we're not really given any information on how those things were done. We're we're left with a record based on the rocks and the geology and, and the things that we see in the earth that we can observe to maybe guess at how these things were actually accomplished. But the biblical text doesn't usually go into too much detail other than just to say, you know, this is this is what happened. So the the danger in trying to read more scientific modern scientific theory into the creation story is that science is changing, right? Science changes as new observations are made, as we find new data, new evidence um, that maybe changes the the thinking. You know, when Charles Darwin was doing his thing, we didn't have information about DNA. We didn't have information about deep samples in the core of the earth or, you know, other things like that that we have now. And so the scientific thought from Charles Darwin's day to today has changed uh, pretty radically. Not the same. Now, most will tell you that it's still based on an evolutionary theory. They've just made some tweaks and adjustments to it. 
And there's nothing really wrong with that. You know, science and the scientific method are good and they're necessary. I mean, it's a good methodology. There's nothing wrong with it. And actually, the people who came up with the methodology were uh, in large part believers. It was a lot of your early scientists that were developing these methods and in these ways of looking and observing things and trying to uh, test theories and hypothesis. Those were Christians that were doing that. And it wasn't until later, until Darwin and, and some of the the more modern scientists got involved that started with the viewpoint that if God does not exist, how can we explain these things? And so, um, which has kind of become the primary thought among most of your modern scientists. Although I'm suspecting there's actually a lot of Christians mixed in amongst them. They just don't talk about their Christianity for fear of not being able to get funded or being taken seriously for their science. But having said that, you know, the scientific method uh, is a good thing. I mean, it's it's really simple. You make an observation, you come up with a theory or a hypothesis, you test it, and depending on the results you get, you repeat it again. See if, see if it holds true. If it, if it doesn't hold true, then you go back and you look at your theory or your hypothesis and you tweak that. And then you test again to see if that changes things. And this is something we use in a lot of areas of life. It's not just science where we use this kind of thinking. Um, when I was thinking about recording this, the first thing that came to my mind was troubleshooting, right? I work as a, as a technician. I'm out in the field working on instrumentation. I'm doing a lot of troubleshooting. You know, something's gone wrong. And so in thinking about that, um, it follows the same process, you know, say, say working on a car, something we can all kind of relate to. Um, you're working on a car, uh, there's some wrong, something wrong with it. It's making a knocking noise. It's not running right. It's choking out on you, whatever. There's no power. So you're observing this, right? You're observing that there's something not right with the car. So you come up with a theory or a hypothesis. What could it be? Maybe it's a plugged fuel filter. Maybe it's a fouled spark plug. Maybe uh, it's a bad cap and rotor. Maybe with the newer electronic cars, it's a bad oxygen sensor. You know, it could be a number of different things. And uh, so you come up with a theory that best fits the observations you're making about the way the car is running. And you come up with a hypothesis. Well, I think it's this, right? I think it's maybe the, the dirty fuel filter. So you crawl under the car and you change out the fuel filter. And then you go drive the car, you test it out. Did that fix the problem? Well, it seems to be running a little better, but it still hasn't totally fixed the problem. It still, you know, lacks power at the upper end. There's something not going right here. So you repeat the process. You develop another theory. What else could it be? It could be this, could be that. You know, we're using these processes all the time uh, in basic troubleshooting. You know, you use the same thing as a mother with a sick child, right? Your child comes to you with a stomachache. Oh, I don't feel good. I got a bad stomachache. Well, you don't just start you know, dumping the Pepto-Bismol down them right away, right? You try to determine why. What, what's causing your, your stomach to be, you know, hurting you? What, what's the problem? Did you eat something? Did you drink something? You know, show me where you were. If it's a small child, you know, you're looking around in their room. Uh, maybe they got in underneath the uh, kitchen cabinet and drank something they shouldn't have drank. You know, that's a totally different scenario than maybe getting, you know, some food or overeating to where they're, they're just, uh, discomfort because they ate too much. You know, if they drink something that's poisonous from underneath the kitchen sink, then you take a totally different approach as to how you're going to solve this problem. Again, it's still that same methodology. You're making an observation. You're coming up with a theory or hypothesis of what you're thinking it is. Uh, you're making some adjustments to see if it makes the child feel better. If it doesn't make the child feel better, you go back and you look at it again, or maybe, you know, you take them to the doctor or whatever. 
The doctor is going to do the same thing. The doctor is going to observe your child, going to see what's going on, going to maybe do a little poking around and come up with a theory or hypothesis of what they think the problem is and then give you some course of action, you know, uh, medication or whatever to, to help alleviate the symptoms. Or Epicac, if it's something poisonous possibly, or drink a, you know, a bunch of milk to try to dilute it. You know, there's lots of different things you can do it, using this scientific method, and we use it for everything, right? It's used for all kinds of stuff. So the method itself is, is not bad. It's the assumptions, which is the thing that Jacob was talking about this last Sunday. It's the assumptions that we have issues with. So we see that some Christians, some theologians are trying to take the more modern scientific theories and sort of piece fit them into the creation story to make the creation story still relevant, still fit. Um, but I would say that what we really should be doing is we should be using the creation story as our reference. You know, it is the thing that we consider to be truth and that we then we go out and we make our observations based on what we know from history past, from what we've been told in the scripture. And that changes completely how you look at at the way um, the world is today and how things came to be the way they are today, right? Because the creation story tells of cataclysmic events that radically changed the world, right? So originally, Adam and Eve were in a garden. Everything was pristine. Everything was wonderful. Then sin entered in, and they were cast out of the garden. And God laid out all these different curses um, on the earth and on them and how things were going to operate after that time. And then we're told in Scripture that um, the earth got so bad at, at some point that just the sin and the debauchery and whatnot of humanity had gotten to the point where God decided just to wipe the whole thing out with the great flood. And the flood story, I don't think we, we give it enough credence. We just think of it as the water rising and everything drowned, the water went back down, everything was fine again. But there was a lot going on during that year, year and a half period of the flood where the earth was being radically altered, radically changed, everything changed, the geology changed, lakes and oceans changed, we got different changes in our atmosphere, uh, everything changed. And we know that that is the case from the scripture, because after the flood, uh, the lifespan of humanity went from being several hundred years to right around 100 years, right? The maximum, we're told, is about 120 years. And so, and we know that most of us only live to be, you know, if you have a good long life, or what we consider to be a long life today, somewhere between 70 and 90 years, and that's, you know, that's a radical change. That's not just the earth got covered in water and then the water went back down again. You're talking radical changes to the way the w world looked and it operated, totally different. Whereas the evolutionary viewpoint takes a, what they call a uniformitarian approach, and the uniformitary approach says that the things we observe now, the way the world works now, is the way the world has always worked. And therefore, the processes that are in place that we can observe now, they're slow and they're gradual. And because of that, we think that that's just the way it's always worked. And so therefore, in order for that to work and develop the kind of life and diversity and everything we see on the planet now, that requires millions of years to occur. Right. And they keep extending that back further and further, as Jacob noted, because the more we get into statistics and other kinds of genetic science and that kind of thing, we realize that the complexity involved to have life evolve the way it is today uh, would take literally billions and billions of years for that to occur. Uh, if you're going to do it through this natural process of uniformitarianism over time. 
So that's kind of interesting to think about and, and an approach to look at, but it kind of illustrates this idea that if we're using scripture as our reference and making observations, you come up with a radically different view on how things developed than if you use the current scientific thinking on evolution in millions of years. Totally different. Totally different. So it shows the importance of history in informing our now versus our now to inform our history, right? It's that idea of ex-Jesus versus eisegesis that we talk about in reading the scripture. If you're taking your current thoughts and your culture and everything now, and you're reading that back into scripture, you're going to get a completely different viewpoint of what scripture is trying to tell you than if you try to read scripture from its vantage point, looking at the original languages, the original audience, the author, what was going on at the time, that kind of thing, and then reading out of that, how that should affect our lives today. There's two totally different ways of looking at it. And you can kind of look at the development of the world, creation versus evolution, kind of the same way. One is exegesis and one is eisegesis. So what I've been doing lately is, I guess, because of all this talk of, of creationism and whatnot, I, I watch a lot of YouTube videos because I like how-to kind of videos, you know, cooking and other things like that. I really enjoy that kind of stuff. And uh, all of a sudden, these recommendations start popping up in my feed uh, for YouTube, and they're all these different uh, creation channels, which I thought was kind of interesting. You know, our computers are listening to us all the time. And, uh, and so I, I happened to run across a YouTube channel called Is Genesis History? which I, I thought was kind of interesting. And so I watched a few of the videos and they were really good. And the thing I liked about the series, and there is kind of a movie that sort of takes a, a general, more condensed approach. It's about an hour and 45 minutes to watch the whole thing. And it's really good. I suggest if you haven't checked it out, to check it out. Um, but then there's also various segments where they've taken longer versions of the individual shorter segments in the movie and they've expanded it out to show you kind of the whole conversation, I guess, that occurred. And the, the author of these, uh, he's going around and he's talking to different scientists in their field. He's talking to geologists. He's talking to archaeologists. He's talking to geneticists. He's talking to marine biologists. And these are all doctors, you know, in their fields of science. And then, but then he also goes and he talks to a uh, Hebrew scholar. And he talks to a theologian uh, kind of towards the end because the whole purpose of, of at least the movie version is that, you know, why does it matter? Does it really matter that we know our origins and that we know the Genesis history, whether or not the Genesis history is true or not? And really it's focusing on those first 11 chapters, uh, which are the chapters that have come under attack. So the first 11 chapters of Genesis tell the whole creation story, the flood story, talk about the early days, you know, right before Abraham. And a lot of theologians, especially modern theologians, have kind of moved away from that in order to be more in line with modern scientific thinking and whatnot and, and saying, well, that's all a nice story, but we don't know it's, if it's historically true. And, you know, really throwing some shade on that whole first 11 chapters of Genesis as to whether or not it's actually true history or whether it's just some kind of an oral tale that, you know, kind of gives us some some nice good feelings about ourselves or something. But if you look at the New Testament authors, the New Testament off authors definitely referenced it as history. They didn't, they didn't look at it in terms of it just being a nice story. 
And I want to look at, at one passage in particular, and this is one in Second Peter chapter three, which we've been look, but I've been you know looking at a church and, and spoke, gave a couple mess- messages on. And I, I kind of glossed over this and really didn't think much about it until they referenced it in, in the movie, and it made a lot more sense then. But starting with verse three, it says, "Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires." Verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. That's a key sentence right there. Verse 5, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Verse 7, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So we see in this passage here that Peter, the apostle, was looking at the flood event, Noah's flood, as a historical fact, that this was a fact. But the interesting thing is how it talks about that the scoffers come in the last day scoffing, following their own sinful desires, right? which is what we see in, in the theory of evolution that has kind of swept the whole world and everybody kind of falls into it because it denies God. It doesn't, denies God's existence. And so it allows us to follow our own sinful desires, which we're going to talk a little bit more in a second. Uh, it says, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation, right? Uniformitarianism. Everything has been the same as it's always been. And he says, for they deliberately right? This is, this is a choice. They are choosing to overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word. And by that means, right at the beginning, God created it all. And by the means of these, that the world that then existed, the pre-flood world was deluged with water and perished. Perished means destroyed. It was utterly destroyed. There was little to nothing left of the original world. When Noah and his family got off that ark and began to go out and explore, the world that they had known before then now looked completely different. And I think this series on YouTube kind of brings that out that, you know, there are areas of the world where huge sediment layers were laid down in a matter of months. Uh, In the Grand Canyon, you see these real thick, huge different sediment layers that were laid down as as the flood and the continents moved and everything you know, volcanoes went. And, and one of the things they talked about that I thought was so intriguing in the series was that the cataclysmic event of the flood and the world directly after the flood was still pretty cataclysmic. It was not peaceful. Uh, Noah and his family and the descendants after them probably endured lots of earthquakes, lots of volcanic eruptions, uh, lots of severe weather, tornadoes, hurricanes, things like that. Uh, more so than we do today, and that over time, those more severe events, because the earth is still recovering, it's still healing, if you will, from that massive flood cataclysmic event, and that everything is gradually still in this phase of settling down and calming down. And they had explanations for the ice age and how that occurred, and it was all very, very interesting. Again, I encourage you to to go watch it and check it out. Uh, some really interesting stuff that I think can help you with your your faith and your confidence in the Holy Scripture. So we see here that there is some value in 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 really literally taking those first eleven chapters in Genesis as history. 
Now, does it explain all of history throughout the world, you know, during that time? No. God reveals the things he needed to reveal to us to give us the story, the narrative that he wanted us to have. And so it doesn't doesn't go into everything that occurred pre-flood. It's giving us kind of a the the big picture view of what's going on. And so I heard it once said that is the Bible a scientific or a a book of history? And the answer is no, it, it's not. But where it touches on science and where it touches on history, it's fully accurate. And so I, I think we need to kind of keep that in mind. So we've got the New Testament offers. Even Jesus made references, various references to those first 11 chapters and, and treated them as, as history. And so I think we should too. Well, why is, why is it important? Why does it really matter? Well, the creation story in the creation account, I guess it's not really a story, it's an account, gives value and worth to humanity, Right. As human beings, we have value and worth because we are the pinnacle of that creation. We are chartered by God to care for this world that he created for us to live on. And even though it's under the curse of sin, and even though we're told as part of our curse uh, as men that our labors are largely going to be fruitless, we still see that we are the pinnacle creation and we are to fill the earth and we are to do what we can to take care of this earth. And so it gives value and it gives worth to humanity. Now, the flip side of that is the evolutionary history. The evolutionary history does what? It says we're a cosmic accident. It says through a series of various uh, mutations and genes, we evolved from the muck and slime that started as life on this planet. And so that doesn't really give you a lot of value or worth to your life, you know, and and the whole idea and the thinking and the meaning of life, you know, your, your uh, existential existence or whatever, and thinking about, you know, why am I here? What is my purpose? Those kind of things. Evolution doesn't really answer that. It doesn't help you with that. As a matter of fact, it diminishes who you are as, as a human being created in God's image, as we believe if you're just created in the image of muck and slime, basically you're expendable. And we've kind of seen how that's worked out throughout history. A lot of people like to really ridicule religion and saying, well, look at all the wars religion has created and look at all the fighting and all the death because of religion. Well, it doesn't hold a candle to the atheistic Marxist viewpoint. Uh, Marxism, communism, and that atheism that drives it, that that atheism that says humanity can do all of these things on their own. God is not needed. God is the opiate of the masses, all those kind of things. There's been more death in the last, what, hundred and what are we looking at now? hundred and just over a hundred years, maybe 120 years of Marxist thought killing more people around the world. Millions of people have died because of Marxism and communism directly uh, either through starvation or just being directly killed, and then all of the religious wars throughout the rest of history. And so creation gives value and worth to humanity. Now, we may not do anything with it. We may still do awful things and disregard our worth and our value as creations of God, but that's on us. That's not because that value was never given to us. It was given to us. And we're told that in the creation story in those first 11 chapters of Genesis. So the other thing is creation calls us to a higher purpose. So if we are made in God's image, 
And if we are chartered and given this command to fill the earth and to care for the earth and care for the creatures of the earth, that gives us higher purpose. That gives us a higher calling. That gives us um, some worth and some, and maybe even some, uh, I'll keep using the word worth and value, but really it, it gives us, it really gives our lives purpose and meaning in a life that can sometimes seem like there really is no purpose or meaning in it. And that's important. And that's one of the things that we as Christians maybe need to do a better job of is instead of focusing on the sin problem, which is a huge problem and is something that needs to be taken care of. But once a person has come to faith in Christ and is on that road to sanctification, we need to be calling them to that higher purpose, calling them to to live their life with purpose and with integrity as a created being, a created being in the image of God, uh, something that was created at the pinnacle of his creation, and it was said that it was good. And so I just want to leave you with that, something to think about, hopefully. And uh, like I said, if you get a chance to, to go on YouTube and check out that YouTube channel, and again, it's just called Is Genesis History. So if you'll go to YouTube and just type in at the top of the search bar, there is Genesis History, the channel should come up and you should be able to begin to watch some of the videos uh, on it. It's pretty good. There's also Answers in Genesis and some other channels that are on there too that also talk about different things. And I will tell you that, you know, creation scientists also have different viewpoints on how they think things may have occurred or happened. So it's not all, it's not all in a, you know, total agreement there either, but it's all very interesting, you know, and ultimately we will know uh, one day when we stand before the Lord, all that will be revealed to us. And, uh, but until then, it, it is interesting to go out and observe these things and see the wonderful world that God made and to see how we are living in the days after, you know, the complete destruction of the earth and what that did to the earth and how that looks today. So with that, again, just want to thank you for the time that you took to listen. I hope you enjoyed our discussion today and found it thought-provoking. The Upper Room is a Bible Fellowship Church production. The opinions discussed by our guests are just opinions and random thoughts at the time of recording and do not necessarily reflect the doctrine or stated beliefs of Bible Fellowship Church. 